want you to imagine this morning that you are, okay, you just had the economics class, but we're moving now to the next module, and now we're walking into a theology class at, at Marin Covenant University. Marin Covenant University theology class. And today's topic in this theology class, because that's going to be a bit of the style of this morning's message. Today's topic is a theological topic, one we just experienced in real fashion with real water uh, recently here, the topic of baptism. But even more specifically, and this is what caught me this week, it had me baffled this week. I did some real study this week. Not that we do fake study the other weeks, but I mean, you know what I'm saying. I was scratching my head this week because the topic this morning is, is baptism, but specifically the baptism of Jesus. And the question is, why in the world was Jesus baptized? And, and what might we learn from the baptism of Jesus? But it's also a class about how to read and interpret Scripture. Because here's what we're doing. We're going to learn the second lesson by working through the first lesson. So by working through the text for this morning about the baptism of Jesus, we're hoping to reveal a little bit, give a little clue, a little hint, some insight into how you deal with Scripture, how we read Scripture, how we interpret Scripture. And as Ben announced earlier, we're launching starting tomorrow, although he also said somebody cheated, but that's okay, I cheated too. We're launching this idea of the summer in the scriptures. We're going to be together in the scriptures, learning and reading the same things, staying on track. And then the idea, as he announced last week, I believe, was that the sermons would then be on the following week. So you read the, the chapters, which is three or four or five chapters in some days. You read those all week long. And then the following Sunday, whoever's preaching from the preaching team gets to choose anything that we have previously read that week and make that their landing point for the sermon. That's the way we're going to work this, uh, work this deal. But today, we haven't read. We're launching tomorrow. So I went ahead, and I'm picking one of the texts that's in your reading this week. You'll read from the first few chapters of Matthew in your reading schedule this week, and that's where we are this morning. And here's what I want to introduce. Not that you should do this for every single text we read. But during that series of chapters during the week, we want to encourage you to at least take one section of what you read that really seems to be speaking to you and maybe dig in a little deeper with the structure that I'll offer. And then we'll attempt to structure our messages through the summer with these three movements in each message. Does that make sense? A good structure for reading and understanding Scripture. What I'm going to introduce to you in structure this today as we walk through one of those sections of Matthew is what my professor called an MSR exercise in our hermeneutics classes in seminary. Hermeneutics is the art and science of interpretation. It's not applied just to scripture. We use hermeneutics really when we communicate with each other. When I read poetry, secular poetry I read, it's, there's a hermeneutical process. When I read the newspaper, there's a hermeneutical process uh, that takes place as the art and science of interpretation. And there are certain things that our minds employ when we're reading any literature or when we're practicing communication with each other. This is really communication theory on paper or for literature. 
the MSR exercise. He said there were three things we look at when we look at a text he taught us, M, S, and R. First, the meaning, then the significance, and the response. And that's what we're going to look at today and try to learn a little bit about that procedure, that process, that tool, by actually applying it to a text. My professor was Professor Jim Andrews, and he was one of my favorite professors. Some of you I know have read a book that he put out a few years ago called called Polishing God's Monuments. If you haven't, I would recommend it. Uh, I would recommend it to you today. He was just great. Uh, But anyway, we read the scriptures the same way we read with the same rules of interpretation that we use for reading any literature. Meaning, significance, and response, especially in the area of meaning. So let's dig into this. You ready? This will be a little bit like a lecture today, a little more than a sermon, but I'm Italian. I can't help but preach a little bit. Jim used to always tell us as well, he said, there's a difference between preaching and teaching. He said, but all good preaching teaches. That's what he used to remind us of. Hey, would you stand for the reading of this morning's text? for the reading of our scripture together from Matthew 3. Matthew's account of the baptism of Jesus. Why was Jesus baptized? So this is John the baptizer that the scripture is referring to here at first. But when he, John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing people, he said to them, you brood of vipers, You wouldn't have wanted John to be the greeter at your church because he didn't really start well with people. (laughs) Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John there speaks of a second or another baptism. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And after John said that, the text goes on. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, as soon as he came up, out of the water, right after that event. He went up and came out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, and with whom I am well pleased. May God add his blessing to his holy word, his fully inspired message to us. Go ahead and be seated. That's one of the texts you'll read in your reading program. That's just a few verses from one of the sections of Scripture you'll read as you're reading through Matthew 
uh, this week. And I want to dig into it a little bit. And in this, we're going to move through those three things. Meaning, what's the meaning of this text? What's the significance of this text? And what's my response to this text? And as we move through, we sort of move through this intellectual funnel. The meaning, there's only one meaning in Scripture. We're confused sometimes by our semantics, but our semantics trip us up because you'll often hear people saying, and maybe, maybe you've even said it yourself. I certainly have said it myself. Like, here's what this text means to me. What does this text mean to you? Implying that there can be more than one meaning to a text. And for our sake... Here's our understanding. Here's what we mean by the meaning of the text. The meaning of the text in our language, in our experience, is simply this. It's what the author meant by what the author wrote or what the author said. For our understanding, that's what we're using when we define the meaning of the text. What did the author mean by what the author said? When you're reading the newspaper, you're always asking that question. What did the author mean by what the author said? When you're reading a history book, what did the author mean by what the author said? When you're reading poetry, a little squirrelier there. But what did the author mean by what the author said? What was the author trying to convey? And the hard work is this, getting into the mind of the author. In communication, when talking with each other. Talking, raising, raising adolescents, got adolescent grandchildren. That's a question you have to ask every time you talk with them. What did the child mean by what the child said? Because those words she used, she's not using them the same way I grew up using them. They didn't mean the same thing coming from her mouth that they did coming from my mouth or would have meant coming from my mouth. Don't we employ that all the time? Anytime you're communicating with somebody, that's the meaning. I don't have the right to have Miles come to me and say, dude, that's cool. And know that he means to respond to one of the paintings that he saw out in the lobby. And then I assign a completely different meaning to it and then hold him accountable for it. He wasn't talking about the weather. He was talking about the painting and the context tells us that. But I don't have the right to say, well, that meant that to him, but what Miles said meant this to me. It meant that it's not hot outside, and that's what you said, Miles. It's not what he said, what the author meant by what the author said. Have I drilled down on that enough? And we need to come to Scripture and stop this idea that we get to assign meaning to it. It meant what Paul meant for it to say. It meant what Jesus meant for it to say. You've got to get into the mind of the source to know what they meant when they wrote. And by the way, you don't have to be especially spiritual to arrive at the meaning of the text. That's largely an intellectual process with historical background and good study tools and People who have no clue about who Jesus is or who have a good clue about who he is and reject him completely, scholars can still arrive pretty close to the meaning of the text, the same way any of the rest of us can. What does the author mean by what the author said? And this is an astounding and troubling and challenging event. The baptism of Jesus and the record of it, what's in that text? What is there for us to study and learn? This is the hard work right here. 
And so we read this text about Jesus being baptized. My mind is saying, baptism, baptism is about sin and repentance and turning your life around. Baptism, some would even say baptism is about having your sin washed away. That's not technically accurate, but it certainly at least represents that in the baptism of a follower of Christ like we saw last week. Powerful. Te- if, boy, the first gathering was really great. The second gathering, uh, we had to nail the roof back down. The stories were so uh, profound, uh, re- really, really amazing stories of people encountering Jesus having their lives affected and deciding to do an about face and walk a different direction and they want to tell somebody about it and they're baptized to represent that. But what has Jesus got to do with any sense that he needs to have his life turned around? It's baffling. What does Matthew mean to communicate in that text that we just read? It could be as we're researching this. Now we keep open minds and we do study. We don't come with conclusions when we come to the text. We come with questions. We come with convictions. We certainly come with presuppositions. And sometimes it's good to list our presuppositions, just like a good scientist would, so that we at least name them and recognize that they might keep us from seeing the Scripture the way the author meant for us to see it and project something upon it. Uh, that, the, the science of that is called exegesis, to, to go and pull out from the text what's already there. The caution for theologians or biblical scholars, which we all hope we all are at some level, is to do what's called eisegesis. So to come with life's presuppositions and project something into the text, like my illustration with Miles and the it's cool statement, and then walk away and hold God accountable for what we just say the Bible said. But the Bible, God might be saying, I, but I didn't say that. You said that. You you, you came with intellectual and theological whiteout and then went all crazy on the Bible. I didn't say that. Well, it said it's right there. It's what the Holy Spirit said to me. Well, I tell you the story about when I was teaching at, at Multnomah School of the Bible up in Portland. I was an adjunct professor and I was teaching homiletics, preaching. And did I tell you this story? Yeah, I, prob- I can't believe I've been here 10 years and haven't told you the story three times. I probably have. But that's okay, I'll tell it again. The kid, come, I give an assignment. They have the structure. They're supposed to write this sermon. They're undergrads and uh, Bible college undergrads. And sometimes students go to Bible college not to learn, but to prove to their professors how much they really don't need to be there. You know that type? Especially Christians. And want to prove to you that they're really biblically literate. And so the student comes in, and I give the instructions about how to structure a sermon. And we're really me- the mechanics are really strict there. And Guy comes back, gives me a sermon. I had him write it all out. Then I take all of these sermons home and I read them and I work on them and I read ink them and I, this doesn't work, this doesn't work here and this isn't logical here. And, and, and then they're supposed to go back and rework them before they come and actually preach them before the class. This guy comes and I, I mean, he has red ink everywhere in his sermon. And I handed it back to him and I did a lot of work on that message for him. And he comes back and he preaches it the way he uh, had done it originally anyway. I said, well, bro, what, what, what'd you do? I did all that work. You didn't change anything. And he said to me, it's because God told me, <laughs> God told me to preach it the way I originally had it, the way he gave it to me. And I said to him, right? Well, God and I disagree. <clears throat> and guess who's giving you your grade? Not God. Sometimes we project things on God. 
And sometimes we project things on scripture. And sometimes I finish my sermons on time and this may not be one of those days. What is the meaning of the text? Let's look at this text. John's baptism is different than believers' baptism. You have people being baptized by John the Baptist right when Jesus is starting his public ministry. In fact, this baptism of Jesus launches his public ministry. He's been largely not public before now. Hasn't called in disciples yet. John's baptism is a baptism that looks forward and says, I'm now aware and looking, and it's my plan to grab this kingdom of God thing when it comes, and I need it. (coughs) Believer's baptism is subsequent to, as we understand it, is subsequent to finding the gospel, following Jesus, receiving him as Savior, whatever language you want to use, subsequent to yielding to him, and it marks a decision that's made in in believer's baptism. Infant baptism, which we do here, it it marks a child and identifies them with a community of faith, with the hope that one day what was hoped for and projected in their baptism, they choose to make true in their lives by making a decision to follow Christ. But but John's baptism is a connection with repentance and identifying with the idea of the coming kingdom of God. That's my new life trajectory. But Jesus isn't coming to repent. He's certainly not coming to be baptized for the remission of his sin because Jesus has no sin. So why is Jesus being baptized? Part of this is a statement, I think, about what true Judaism looks like. It may be, take this with a grain of salt, this is just the result of One guy like you trying to do good study, trying to find the meaning of the text. It may be that John's baptism is a statement to Jerusalem or to, to Israel that they've been missing it all along. That true Judaism is something other than what they've seen represented what they, many of them had been practicing. And so his, state, his baptism is a call to them to get it right, to repent. And here, here's why I'm thinking that. There's some question, in fact, there's relative certainty among scripture, uh, scholars, but there's some question about how peculiar it might have looked to the Sadducees and Pharisees and Jewish leaders that came and watched this baptism. You know why? Baptism wouldn't have been strange for a Jew to see. They saw it often. Every time a Gentile decided to be convert to Judaism, there was, a, there was a ceremony of baptism as they converted to Judaism. But to see Jews lining up to be baptized was strange to them. What in the world are the Jews lining up to be baptized for, they might ask. That wasn't normal at all. So here John is out preaching this kingdom, baptizing Gentiles and Jews alike, whoever would come. And it was a strange thing to see a Jew baptized like that in the river. It's as though John is saying, it's like they're becoming converts now because what they were living wasn't the original plan in the first place. And you have to ask the question intellectually, is Jesus making a statement like that by allowing himself to be baptized by John? Is Jesus identifying himself with true Judaism? 
signifying that John's message is true. And you have this rebuke that John offers to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were there watching. Does that further this idea, strengthen this idea? Because he's already in context as challenging the religious leaders that what you're living has not been the fruit of true Judaism. You ought to repent and live what you say you believe. And then there's this baptism that's normally tied to converts from Gentile life to Jewish life. And then this teacher that people have maybe been whispering about, even though his ministry is just starting, comes and stands for this baptism. He's standing to be identified with John's baptism, which is a baptism that's a baptism of repentance, even though he has no sin from which to repent. And it's a baptism of identification with true Judaism, implying that what has been done to this point has largely missed the point. So it's a statement perhaps about true Judaism. Why is Jesus being baptized? Secondly, Jesus is baptized and the result of it is that there's a clear endorsement of Jesus from heaven. Matthew's been consumed. You read, when you read Matthew, notice this. All throughout Matthew, he makes a statement about Jesus, identifies something, and then says something like, this is so that what was prophesied in the Old Testament might be fulfilled. And he names it. And then you have Jesus doing something else, and then Matthew goes back and says, ah, that's this prophecy being fulfilled. So Matthew's all about saying to everybody, the one that was being promised, the Messiah, this is him. See, here are 37 points. I don't know if it's 37, but here are 37 proofs. Matthew is about the endorsement of Jesus, the proof that he is the Messiah, fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. Is this a heavenly endorsement? Because right after this text, remember at the end of this text what happens? Jesus is baptized, and then what happens? This dove comes from heaven, poof, just appears and lands on his shoulder. And then there's this voice that some hear as thunder, but others hear as something verbalized, this is my beloved son. This one, the dude with the dove on his shoulder. That one, that's the guy. In whom I am well pleased. How can you be well pleased with him when he just stood for baptism for the repentance of sin? That's not the way it is. This voice comes, and there's this heavenly endorsement that Matthew, of course, would recognize. It's a clear endorsement of Jesus from heaven. And then there's this third thing that I think is attached to the meaning of this text. You have a hint of the suffering servant role. Jesus, our Messiah, a suffering servant, which is opposite of what the Jewish people were expecting. They were expecting a military, political leader. <clears throat> But the prophecy spoke of a suffering servant. And here you have Jesus taking on the role of a servant. This is a baptism that's done by someone who's of lower station than Jesus. Even John the baptizer recognizes that. said, I'm not going to baptize you. I baptize hundreds. I'm not going to baptize you. If anybody should be baptized here today, it's me. And if anybody should be doing the baptizing of me, it's you. I'm of lower station than you. <clears throat> and then Jesus makes that statement, nope, we've got to do it this way so that all righteousness might be fulfilled. Probably a statement of, uh, so, so that folks like you and I can someday have hope to have a new life. 
this is the way things need to be. But you have Jesus sub, uh, subjecting himself to someone who should be of lower station than him. And he says to John, do, do this, baptize me. And he submits himself as a servant. This is a connection with that, an identification of that. And then the next thing that happens, I didn't read it, but right after this, as you read on, Jesus is baptized, has this endorsement from heaven, and then you know what happens next? He's led out into the desert and severely tempted to subvert the servant role and go back to the power structure role. Hey, man, you've got all kinds of power. They said the same thing when he hung on the cross. Come down off of there. Show us your power if you're so powerful, if you're really the son of God. And those temptations in the desert by Satan where he tempts him, hey, do this if you're the son of God. Nope, I'm not. Do this if you're the son of God. Show yourself, prove yourself. You shouldn't be living in, in, in tents. You deserve a mansion. Take this. Thanks, Todd. Thank you, brother. The identification of Messiah with the suffering servant. And reject, he rejects the temptation to go some other way, some way other than the cross in that temptation and stays on course. So Jesus is baptized because he's identifying himself with some things. He's identifying himself with John's message of God's coming kingdom. In fact, some theologians would argue that the coming of Jesus is the coming of the kingdom. It's the launching of the kingdom season in history. And he's identifying himself with that and the need for Israel to repent. Jesus is baptized because he's identifying himself with all of those who need what he's about to bring. I rather imagine that he got in line and that John's baptizing and baptizing and next one, he looks up and he stops cold. And Jesus is identifying himself with all of those who need to be in that line and all of us who need to be in that line. And Jesus is identifying himself with his assignment to rescue humanity by serving it and then suffering for it. He's saying, I do. That's some of what is in the meaning of this text. But what's the significance? In the next movement, remember meaning, significance, response. They get more specific. Significance, that movement asks us to, having discovered the meaning and done the scholastic work of identifying what's in the text, like you might do in a Bible class, it asks us to go and look for some of the timeless truths, some of the principles that are there. What are some of the relevant, timeless truths that we can draw from what we've just discovered in the meaning. Now we step back and now we're interpreting a little more. We're discovering in meaning. Now we're starting to move toward interpretation a little more and principalizing. This is it, the, more, the further we get into this series, the more difficult it becomes to not project something into the text. Usually this process is done in community of thinkers. So somebody can say, come on, that's really your projecting. That's about that thing you dealt with yesterday. That's not there for the text, it's not a principle. So here are some of the principles I have identified that I think are valid as we look at the meaning of the text. Now we're moving into significance. First, first one is here. Humble service is the most powerful way to effect change. 
by the example of Jesus and his baptism, we can reasonably say that he's thinking in his mind and illustrating through this action that humble service is the most powerful way to affect change. A second principle that I grab from this text is that redemptive change will always involve sacrifice and suffering, always. In fact, I'm convinced that there's no significant change for good that happens without some version of suffering and sacrifice. Every parent knows that. Every lover, everybody in a relationship knows that. There's no possibility for affecting change in your child, in your family, at work, in your future, in your relationship, without the clear potential, in fact, the likelihood that you will be deeply wounded by the very people you're serving. Isn't that true? Is there a parent in here who has not yet been deeply wounded by their child? Or their spouse, or their girlfriend, or boyfriend, or a close friend? The principle is this, that redemptive change will always involve sacrifice and suffering. And we are so prone to want a great result and a different future, but to want it and expect it without having to have any scars across our backs, any moments of brokenheartedness, or any sacrifice. It doesn't happen without sacrifice and suffering. Third principle, and the last one that I pull from this text, and then we'll move to response, is this, this, is, this is a hard one for some who are followers of Christ. Faithful Christianity, real Christianity, biblical Christianity, always identifies with and engages with those who need it most. It doesn't distance itself from those who resist Christianity. It engages with and identifies with and connects with and lives alongside those who need the message most, even if they never receive the message. I grew up, and many of you grew up, if you grew up in the church, with the message, come out from among them and be ye what? Separate. Jesus exemplifies something other than that. Go toward them, connect with them, live with them, identify with them, get in line with them to be baptized, saying we've got to change these things, walk alongside them, rub shoulders with them, give people your heart even when they don't agree with the principles of your heart. And not as projects, listen, not as projects, but as people who legitimately love humanity. People who do what Jesus did. We don't retreat from the folks who resist this message of Christ. We engage with them. They are our dear, dear friends, and we are theirs. That's biblical Christianity, not the opposite. You hearing me? I'm seeing that message in Jesus, and that's a dangerous message. Living like that, and some of your Christian friends will say, well, Judas compromised. I want to say, no, the opposite is the compromise. It's an arrogant, painful, destructive compromise. There's this looking down our noses at folks who don't hold to the things that we hold to instead of loving, serving, befriending, learning from. Not agreeing with, serving, connecting with. 
That's a principle I pull from this, Jesus being in line to be baptized just like the next Joe. So meaning, significance, see the difference? One scholastic, now we're starting to principalize, but principles that clearly seem like presuppositions of the ones we've just studied. And then there's response, and this is where it gets completely personal. Response asks the question, now that I've seen what I think is the meaning in this text, and I've seen the significance of this text, some of the significance, there's a longer list than that, but what's some of what's significant? I have to look and let that thing cut right across my life and ask myself the question, now what must I do or stop doing or continue doing or thinking because of what I've just discovered? This really is the what does it mean to me section. This is what, we've just used the wrong language. What's my response to what I've discovered? That's the question. That's a better phrase. Better phrase is, what does it mean for me? Not what does this mean to me? Here are some of the things that I've discovered as I was having my own personal study this week. This is for art. The rest could be for everybody. This is for art. How's art going to respond? So I read this meaning, and then I did the study, and then I did the significance, and I sat for a while, and I thought, Lord, what do you have for me here? I'm not just preparing a sermon. Teach me. Convict me. Encourage me. I thought, for me, one of my, I didn't list these on the slides, but I know that I need to continue to develop my ability to lead from behind and to lead through others. Why? Because humble service is the most powerful way to affect change. So, man, the leadership style I grew up with It's not the leadership style of Jesus. It's the leadership style of George Patton. (laughs) That's what good leadership was when I was growing up. The kind of leadership that Jesus employed was considered weak leadership. But I thought, if I'm going to lead like Jesus, if I'm going to be a faithful pastor, husband, any leader, I need to develop my ability to lead from behind and to lead through others. Secondly, redemptive change always involves sacrifice and suffering. I thought, I need to stop being surprised by challenges and start being concerned when I don't encounter challenges. I need to stop being pissy about suffering and start being a little more concerned when there's nothing asked of me. No personal sacrifice, no suffering. If it's worthwhile and good, change is going to come as an uphill hike. And faithful Christianity always identifies and engages with those who need it most. My response, when I separate myself from folks who are not followers of Christ, in the name of personal holiness, I prove its opposite. Did you get that? When I separate myself from folks who are not followers of Christ in the name of personal holiness, I actually prove its opposite, the opposite of holiness. I need to ask God for authentic love for those with whom I disagree theologically. That's Christianity. And that's, that's a conviction. That's a response. I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to keep doing that. I'm going to start thinking that way and live with that demand and challenge. I I need to end. 
I want to give you, I want to close this message by giving you a chance to think through how the Lord might be asking you to respond. Had you discovered this meaning and then come up with the same conclusions about uh, significance? What are some of the places that this, these three points of significance cut right across your life? What is God inviting you to do? Has anything come to mind? So we've got a slide. We're going to put those back up there. And I'm just going to give you a minute of silence. Think about this. Pray about it. Maybe write it down on a card if something really comes to mind. If not, just enjoy the presence of God and enjoy thinking about some of these things. But if something comes to mind, like, well, you need to keep doing this or stop doing this or start doing or thinking this because of what we've discovered some of the significance of the baptism of Jesus is. Maybe you write it down, take it home with you. But take a minute, just in silence, then I'll dismiss you. I'll stand and be blessed and dismissed with this benediction. And now may the Lord, through his Holy Spirit, guide us to faithfully rediscover the life of Jesus. Clarify our sight so that we see the real life of Jesus and equip us intellectually and spiritually so that we can live the real life of Jesus without separating ourselves from those who need that message the most. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.